0: Summer means different things to everyone. Maybe you look forward to some time off after months of toiling away in the office. Maybe you just can't wait to get out on the bike trails or the beach. For me, I love going to the drive-in. I have since I was 10 years old when my parents first took me to one. It's an experience all its own, a remnant of a forgotten time, and an escape unlike any other for those lucky enough to be there when the sun goes down and the lights come up. In the early 1930s, a sales manager for the Wiz Auto Products Company named Richard Hollingshead Jr. began experimenting in the backyard of his New Jersey home with the idea of an outdoor theater. Projecting films onto a screen that he had made out of two bed sheets nailed to a tree, with an old Kodak movie projector placed on the hood of his car, the idea of the drive-in theater was born. Some stories suggest that Hollingshead's mother, who was a large woman and was uncomfortable sitting in the seating found in a traditional indoor theater at the time, may have been a source of his inspiration. Others suggest that insights he had garnered working for his father's automotive products company could have granted him greater insights into the spending habits of a Depression-era America. So Hollingshead, who much like his father had an entrepreneurial spirit began to tackle many potential roadblocks of his new business endeavor. He placed a radio behind the screen to achieve sound and developed a parking system whereby his patrons' vehicles could park in rows and would be angled slightly upward so that everyone could enjoy an unobstructed view. Early tests involved putting vehicles on blocks in his driveway. Another cool test that Hollings had tried was researching the effects of rainfall. He did this with a simple household sprinkler. Before we go any further, it's important to point out that even in those days, it wasn't unusual for people to project silent films onto outdoor screens, in parks, on farms, even on the beach. Also, long before Hollingshead began work on what would become the first drive-in theater, Las Cruces, New Mexico was home to Theater de Guadalupe, which opened all the way back in 1915, and while having traditional seating, also held about 40 or 50 automobiles, which could take in everything from stage shows to silent moving pictures. Later in 1921, a man named Claude V. Carver of Comanche, Texas, was granted a permit by the city to exhibit films in the city's downtown. People would come and enjoy the projected silent films shown from the comfort of their vehicles. But it wasn't until June 6, 1933 in Camden, New Jersey, although some reports suggest that the property actually sat just over the Camden town line in neighboring pensacon Township, that Hollingshead's vision of the drive-in theater would come to fruition. With an admission price of $0.25 cents per car and $0.25 cents per additional person, which was a bit pricier than a traditional theater at the time, over 300 cars would take in the first ever screening at the aptly dubbed drive-in theater. Now I should mention that regarding the parking system that I alluded to earlier that Hollings had developed at his home in Riverton, he actually filed for and was granted a patent on this design. And this practice is still employed by modern era drive-ins. Okay, If you're thinking what I'm thinking, you're probably about to ask me, Brandon, how do you apply for a patent on grading your property to resemble a regular movie theater and simply switching out seats for cars? While the First Circuit Court of Appeals would agree, they ruled the patent invalid at the turn of the 1950s, which ironically would mark the dawning of what many consider to be the golden era of drive-in cinema. It's also interesting to note that Hollingshead's company, Parkett Theatres, which controlled the patent, had an extremely hard time collecting on the patent and underwent many illegal battles in the process. Now, while Hollingshead's theater in Camden would only survive for two years, failing to ever turn a profit before closing its gates forever in 1935, with Hollingshead selling all but 30% of his stake in the company, a modest little drive-in theater in Orfield, PA, which was opened in 1934, one year after the Camden Theater opened by Wilson Shankweiler, continues showing movies to this very day. Even Hurricane Diane, which destroyed the theater's projection booth and screen, couldn't put a stop to America's second drive-in theater. The 1940s, while still a period of growth for the drive-in theater, marked America's entry into the Second World War. Building of non-essential structures was halted in many communities, and rationing of many items forced some drive-ins to shut down. But as World War II came to a close, and as our veterans found their way home, drive-ins began to regain their popularity. By the end of 1946, there was 155 drive-ins open in America, and Canada joined in on the fun too, with the Skyway Drive In opening in July of 1946 in Stony Creek, Ontario. The 1950s car crazy culture helped to cement the drive in theater's place in history. North Americans flocked to what would grow to be over 4,000 drive ins operating on the continent. In 1952, the Port Hope Drive In, Canada's oldest operating drive in, opened appropriately located on Theater Road just off the 401. Indoor theaters actually saw a steady decline in this era as well, with approximately 5,000 cinemas closing their doors across America between 1948 and 1958. As suburban cities sprung up across the continent, and with land prices being much more reasonable than they are today, drive-in theaters moved in on many territories not currently occupied by indoor theaters. Touting reasonable prices and free admission for children, families arrived in droves with mom and dad taking in a movie on a night out with the kids clad in their pajamas in the back seat. Many drive-ins catered to families by installing playgrounds, rides, even petting zoos. Some had fireworks shows and while others even hosted live music. The possibilities seemed endless for this celebrated family tradition. That is until television made its way into the North American household. Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of sound at the drive-in. Early drive-ins projected their sound from giant speakers that were placed near the screen. There were several problems with this. The noise pollution created by these massive speakers for surrounding communities became a notable problem in the post-war 1940s as suburban sprawl began to change the landscape of North America. Not to mention that you had to keep your window down regardless of the temperature to hear unobstructed. Also, let's not forget that light moves a lot faster than sound does. Hundreds of thousands of times faster than sound, in fact. Even with things like air and refractive surfaces slowing it down, it still moves a lot faster. So when people in the back rows of the early drive-ins would hear the audio, it would be out of sync with the picture. Think of it like when you see a bolt of lightning flash in the sky... Then moments later, you hear the crash of the thunder. So in 1941, RCA began selling an in-car speaker, which would become a standard of drive-in theaters come the end of the 1940s. It helped solve the problem of noise pollution and gave patrons a heightened experience. We've all seen these classic speakers hanging on a pole coming up from the ground on either side of the parking spot at your local drive-in. You would simply hang the unit on your window and adjust the volume as you required. They're obviously not in use anymore, as they too have their shortcomings. Your window still had to be down, at least a crack, which isn't the most pleasurable experience on those cold nights. This is something that drive-ins tried to combat with in-car heaters, which proved to not be the best idea. Theater owners were also constantly replacing and repairing these units as people were driving away with the speakers still in their windows. This was such a problem that drive-ins literally ran advertisements reminding people to put the speakers back before leaving. But fear not, because the 1970s would bring a solution that would prove to be both more cost-effective to drive-in owners and more pleasing to their patrons, as the first low-wattage AM transmitters and later FM transmitters would be employed to combat the audio problems that had long been a detriment to the drive-in experience. Now because these transmitters are so low in wattage that they don't transmit very far beyond the drive-in's property, Both the FCC and the CRTC have deemed these exempt from requiring a license, which is an anomalous bit of luck when you consider the poor fortune and hardships that most drive-in owners have faced over the years. And that's where we'll pick up our story again. As the 1960s brought forth a wide-sweeping change in our culture, the drive-in theater climate began to change as well. While the early 1960s were still very prosperous for many drive-in operators, attendance began to slump in the mid-1960s as TV took a hold on American culture and the multiplex cinema emerged. What many see as the coup de grace to the family-focused drive-in experience of the 1950s and early 60s was the advent of daylight savings time in 1966, as films started now as late as 8 or 9 p.m., and that's considerably less appealing to families. But as families began to opt for a Friday night in front of the television, teenagers continued to flock to drive-ins as they had before. And who could blame them? It was a cheap date with ample privacy to exercise their overactive hormones. Because of this, the term passion pits became commonly used for drive-ins. As audiences evolved, so too did the films exhibited by the drive-ins. Movies targeted to rebellious and angsty teenagers, as well as beach movies, garnered teen audiences looking for an escape from their parents and their siblings, and maybe a place to neck a little. Horror, sci-fi, and exploitation pictures found their audiences at the drive-in, too. Later, even pornography was screened at some drive-ins. Yes, I said pornography. People used to have to get in their car and drive to see other people naked. I know, I know. The days before the internet, I can't believe they survived either. Moving along. Now, before we continue, I'd like to read a quote quickly, if I could. Drive-ins are rapidly becoming part of our nostalgic past. I foresee the extinction by the end of the decade. That's Sumner Redstone, legendary media magnate. His company, National Amusements, is the majority shareholder in the CBS Corporation and Viacom. And he once operated upwards of 60 drive-ins across America, including the legendary Sunrise Auto Theater in Long Island, now the Sunrise Multiplex Cinemas. If you ask most people that were around at the time about drive-in movie culture in the 1980s, many thought just like this. As VCRs and cable TV and later video games became staples of entertainment for the North American family, many thought the demise of the drive-in theater was imminent. Moreover, skyrocketing real estate prices made it nearly impossible for the drive-in owner to not at least consider cashing in on the property values that substantially eclipsed any potential revenue from exhibiting films. And as the 1990s began, it was all but certain that drive-ins would soon be extinct. But then in the mid-1990s, the strangest thing happened, and for the first time in over two decades the number of drive-ins in North America stopped dropping. Sure, some were still closing, but new ones were springing up. Baby boomers who had grown up riding to the drive-in, dressed in their pajamas in the back of their parents' car, were coming back. And they were bringing their kids along with them, as their parents had. So just as it seemed that the credits were about to roll on the drive-in theater, a new generation of moviegoers have helped to breathe new life Into a place where escapism isn't just on the screen and where the experience that you have is way more important than the movies that you see. In 2013, digital conversion again forced many drive in owners to close their doors, at least temporarily, while they raised funds for what is on average about a $70,000 conversion. But drive-in culture still is going strong. I encourage everyone listening to go to the drive-in. Uh, visit driveins.com. That's drive-ins.com. Or search on the internet for a drive-in near you. Uh, take your family or your friends. It's a great first date. It's a great any date. Throw some pillows and blankets in your car. Take your guitar, maybe a frisbee or a baseball and a couple of mitts even some folding chairs. It's a unique experience and a wonderful form of escapism. Thank you for listening. I'm Brandon Fleet. You can reach me on Twitter at Fleet. Now, before you email me asking, yes, the panel is coming back next week. Many of the Mermel panelists have been sick over the past few weeks and we thought, while everyone's recovering, why not share with you a preview of a new series that we're working on and that we're hoping to premiere in the coming months, hopefully by fall. We hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us and follow us uh, on Twitter at Mermal Podcast. You can also email the show at show at moviesroommylife.com. We read every email. We reply to as many as we can as quickly as we can. Um, We want to know, have you been to the drive in what do you think of it? I'd love to hear your stories, your experiences. If you care to hear mine, I'd love to share them with you. I have some really fond memories from my youth, uh, some really interesting combinations of films. I'm sure that you guys do too. So until next Wednesday when the panel returns for our discussion on Captain America Civil War, thanks for hanging out with us. i just like to talk for a second about the importance of concession stands at the drive-in and its part in the drive-in experience. Concession sales play a huge role in the profitability of drive-ins, even today, as much of the box office revenues go directly to the studios. And concessions at a drive-in are considerably less expensive than you would see at, for example, a regular movie theater where you could pay 10 bucks for a large drink. Also, it's worth noting that it wasn't always like nowadays, where you can go and see the new hit movie at the drive-in along with one or two more for half the price of a regular theater. Drive-in theaters were denied first-run rights to films for a long time, so they were showing second-run films and paying huge costs to exhibit them, and were basically successful because of the experience they created. I know it's an interesting business model to wrap your head around, but It worked and it still works today. So I encourage all of you, go out to the drive-in, enjoy yourselves, have a great time and take in every part of the experience, including the concessions.